0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What is Money show. I am sitting down today with Mr. Stefan Kinsella, and we're going to be exploring some of his written work, uh, particularly one piece called Legislation and the Discovery of Law in a Free Society, exploring the nature of centralized versus decentralized law. So, Stefan, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks very much, Robert. Glad to be here
0: yeah I'm glad you came on, and this is something a topic I've been thinking about a lot, and uh, I think you're the right guy to talk to you about it with. so you open with this quote that I really like from Franz Kafka, who wrote that Justice must stand quite still, or else the scales will waver, and a just verdict will become impossible What exactly? does that mean?
1: Well, for me, that quote, um, um, I, I like it because it, it, it captures some of the uh, the analysis uh, I try to draw it in the article, which a lot of it's highlighted by Hans-Hermann Hoppe. Um, it's basically the idea that when you make law in a certain way, um, it increases overall uncertainty, and that's bad in so many ways. Um, It's bad for time preference. It basically raises time preference, Mm. um, and it reduces inefficiency. It makes us all poorer. Now, how does it do that? I mean there's another expression which is similar to that, which is that no man's life, liberty, and property are safe while the Congress or the legislature is in session, right? And the idea there is that When you have a stable legal system and and hopefully a good legal system, um, so you have two things that you want the law to have. You want it to have stability and you want it to be just. But even if it's not perfectly just, as long as it's stable, then it's predictable and you can maneuver around it, right? You know what to expect. But when it's subject to arbitrary whims and decrees, um, then you never know what to expect. And, uh, you know, so. The problem this this is the result of having the type of legal system that we have nowadays, which is legislation is seen by most people as the dominant source of law, where law legal law that is not not there's other types of law right the word law is used for things other than legal law or juristic law uh, like uh, moral law economic laws. Um, Things, the physical laws like the law of gravity. But by well, usually when people talk about law, they they mean legis, they mean uh, state law or the law that determines human affairs, right? Consequences for interpersonal actions between people. And nowadays, law has been corrupted and perverted and distorted and changed from the the origin and the history of law, which was not the way it is now. In the past, law emerged as the um, the set of rules that people settle upon to regulate interpersonal affairs, and usually they are decided upon according to certain uh, obvious or common sense natural principles, like first owner, first user of a resource is the owner, uh, or you can you can convey it to someone by contract that is by consent, and the owner of that resource has the right to determine who can use it. So those are all fairly common sense things. So you have Property contract, and then you have things like torts and crimes, um, and those laws develop basically when people have disputes or conflicts over the use of scarce resources, including their bodies, and they seek uh, a solution to that dispute, usually as a third party, like an arbitrator or a judge or a king, and the the guy making the decision about who gets to use the resource or who is right or who is wrong is usually trying to find a fair or a just result so they use common sense principles they use local customs local uh, local values of the people and they re- and they uh, they re- refer to previous decisions of the growing body of law so that's how the law develops so that's what law is law is an attempt to find and develop rules that helps us live together in peace … and in a conflict-free way given that we live in a world where, there conflict, where conflict is possible because there's scarcity. Um, but over time, especially since the advent of, of, of democracy about 200 years ago, um, the parliament or the legislature or the congress, which has always had a power to make law by decree, but it was always a fairly minor part of the overall body of law. The private law was usually developed in this decentralized fashion I mentioned earlier uh, by a bunch of courts or tribunals deciding disputes between real people and trying to find a fair result, trying to do justice. They didn't always succeed, but at least they were trying to, and by and large, the body of private law in the Western legal – in the Western system is fairly libertarian. Um, And the two great systems are the Roman law and then the common law of England uh, both of which lasted for you know uh, well the common law is still alive but uh, you know roughly 1000 year periods uh, so about a 1000 year period for the development of the roman law and then later the the the, the british common law the english common law started being developed um, but nowadays we have an increasing prevalence um, of legislatures and congress making the laws and gradually submerging the private common law with legislation. And this has corrupted even the average person's understanding of law. So you'll hear, you know, someone will say, Show me the law, <laughs> or what is the law? Where's it written down on paper? So they think of law as commands written down by an, uh, arbitrary commands written down by uh, a committee. Of government bureaucrats, which we call legislators or congressmen, or sometimes the king himself, right? When you have a dictatorship, just the decrees or edicts, and people think of it like that. And then, the, instead of evaluating the law as being fair or good or just based upon what it says and its effect on people, they look at the process by which it arose. And this is the this is what democracy's done to us. So, um, it, when when there's a law that someone doesn't like. The person defending the law will say, "Well, was it enacted legitimately by the legislature? You know, did did a majority of the legislature vote for it? Yes, and were the legislators democratically elected? Yes. So you had a you as a citizen had a chance. You had a say so in the formation of the government and the in the selection of the legislators and the policy that they were going to enact. So you really can't complain. So then the question is not really whether the law is just." It's whether it was formally – adopted formally uh, according to certain procedures, mm. right? so then if that's the case, then the law can be enforced, and you really can't complain. Mm. Um, but, of course, this means that the law can change from day to day. When the law is formed incrementally and organically and in a decentralized fashion as it used to be… It's not easy for the law to change radically from day to day because no judge has the power to rewrite all the law. Even if he has a bad decision, other judges just won't follow him, and moreover, he's limited by certain judicial principles like dicta. Um, and not only that, he can only make an issue a decision when two parties come to him. He can't just sit down one day when there's no business and just write a decision … that says, I think there should be um, an Americans with Disabilities Act. You know, mm. I think that there should be a COVID mask policy. This, it would just be ignored because it's 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 not. Uh, there's no case or controversy between actual parties, and he has no precedent he can rely on for that. So, um, so the the, the the decentralized legal process is more stable and more certain. Um, so that's the meaning of that statement. If that if that gets an answer to your question.
0: Yeah, that was wonderful. Thank you for that. Um so it seems to me like we're dealing with law by fiat versus discovery in a way. And this is similar to I think price action under a, you know, a hard money standard versus a fiat currency standard where you know, price discovery is something that happens in the marketplace through free voluntary mutual exchanges of, of market participants. But when you introduce this decreed form of money called fiat, it creates a lot of, of price distortion. And it sounds like there's a similar dynamic at play here that we're starting to insert, I guess, perhaps the opinion of a few uh, into the, what was previously a, a consensus established by many, right? Over time or, or, or whatever. Right. So I'll read another little excerpt here because um, I just think this is a great way to frame the, the 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 corruption inherent to centralization, really. You write that Leone argued that legislation as such is incompatible with freedom. If this is correct, then even statutes that seem to embody libertarian principles simultaneously subvert those principles. There is another way There is another way forming law, however, in which law is found rather than made, which does not depend on legislation or legislators. This is the way of decentralized legal systems such as customary law, Roman law, and the common law. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but so there's the old saying that, you know, possession is nine tenths of the law. And so most of these laws have to do with mediating the relationships of property or market actors and resources, I would imagine?
1: Well, in a sense, all law has to be about that because the whole purpose of of law um, is to settle disputes. And disputes are disputes between real, live human being actors, which are two or more people that have physical bodies, which they use to move around in the world and to manipulate things. We all act – this is in the Misesian sense of praxeology. We all act, which means we control our bodies, and we use those bodies to interfere in a causal way to achieve our ends. And we often uh, unavoidably use tools to do that, means, scarce resources mm-hmm. to help us get things done. Um, and the, th- those things that we employ are of such a nature as that they can only be used by one person at a given time. Which means that there's a possibility of conflict. Two people can want, can desire to use the same tool at the same time, and unless they come to some agreement about which one properly has the right to use it, um, then the solution has to be physical violence or fight. Fighting, like so, it might makes right world a brutal world uh, of of chaos, not the good kind of anarchy, but like chaos. Um, and uh, in that kind of world, you know, you can't. Plant crops, you can't build a house, you can't take, you wouldn't bother to take time to invest in long-run production processes because the fruits of your labor would be stolen right away. They'd be unsecure. So why why bother to do it? So we would live a hand-to-mouth existence and we'd live in a primitive society. Um so so as Murray Rothbard pointed out, uh, well, as say Ayn Rand pointed out, all, all rights are human rights. Okay, And that's for sure, and they're individual human rights are rights held by individual human actors. And as Rothbard emphasized, all rights are property rights because all rights have to do with the exclusive right to control a given disputable resource, which is either your body or some physical resource in the world. And all law is just the reflection of various rights. Mm-hmm. So law, in a sense, is always about the assignment of ownership to some resource that's what it ultimately comes down to. So if i you know if you hurt me or if you fail to perform a contract um or if you take something that's mine or if i say that you have something that i think i have a better claim to i go to court i'm asking the court to recognize that i own something like like if you hurt me i'm asking them to say you owe me money which means if you owe, if you own money i'm asking the court to, to transfer ownership from you to me. Mm-hmm. So everything is always about, always about ownership. Um, so all law is really about property rights in the end um you asked earlier about fiat i mean i know that some bitcoiners like uh, sayfadina moose he talks about not just fiat money which is horrible because it's money issued by fiat by state by decree of some some sovereign but you know fiat food and mm-hmm. things like that uh but yeah in terms of law you could say that we have fiat law when the legislate when legislation becomes the dominant source or or the supreme source even of of, of law. Um, and in fact, that's what Leone was getting at. Leone, influenced by Hayek, um, Hayek actually did make an analogy between um, uh, money and economics and the law. So, just as uh, Austrians like Mises and Hayek recognize, um, you can't have successful central economic planning because well according to mises you won't, you won't have a property right you don't have property rights in the in the means of production and therefore mm-hmm. you don't have meaningful prices that inter, that that help allocate resources efficiently mm-hmm. and according to hayek um uh you you block the process of price discover, of discovering dispersed and tacit information which prices help you collect right mm-hmm. so in both cases having a central planning committee of economics, they're always groping in the dark, and they always have a necessarily inefficient uh, decision, which basically means that we're all impoverished, which is why the Soviet Union and North Korea and Cuba and all these countries are always poor. Um, And so Hayek made the analogy that likewise, just like um, if you don't have – if you don't have real free market prices in property in the means of production, you you can't have… Meaningful prices that convey information about scarcity and supply and demand and those kinds of things, uh, you're basically short-circuiting the communication process of the market. By the way, I think there's some problems economically with that argument. I'm more of a Misesian, but anyway, it's a helpful metaphor. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he said similarly um, when 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 a legislative committee just decrees what the law is, they can never know. They can never have enough information about the local circumstances of the communities that they're regulating, right? Normally, when law comes from the ground up in a decentralized fashion organically by – made by judges and decision-makers who can have witnesses and have the parties in front of them. They can ask questions. They can, they can take into account local customs and traditions, and they can know the whole context. They basically gather more information, and the judge can make a more informed decision when he's trying to do the just result, but a central committee making the law… Number one, they're not always trying to do the just result. They're just trying to get something accomplished that they want accomplished, um, so justice is not the standard. And even if it was the standard, um, they don't have enough knowledge of the actors, um, of, the, of the local people that they're trying to regulate. So their laws are always going to be crude and have unintended consequences, um, so that, that is one point that Hayek made that Bruno Leone uh, got from him.
0: Yeah, excellent points there. I find it interesting that you know both law and money are—I mean—they're both social constructs mediating this property relationship, right? Of ownership over scarce factors of production and whatnot. And um, it's interesting too that both fiat law and fiat money would then be used to violate property right we know that when we're expanding the money supply we're basically allocating we're we're diluting the property rights of some in favor of others those nearer the newly produced money and it sounds like with fiat law as well we're creating certain types of distortions um
1: yeah and i think there there's also incentive effects too right i mean like uh, so when the when the central when the central bank can print money it's going to tend to print it for the government's interest and for the interest of the earlier recipients of the money, right, is cronies mm-hmm. and its uh, favored uh, system. Uh, and and likewise, when the legislature enacts law, they're going to pad the law with earmarks and with mm-hmm. special things for their constituents to keep themselves being elected and to do favors for their friends. Um, so yeah, there are lots of similarities in why they're both corrupt and why they both impoverish us and, and harm society, and they disrupt the natural order of things. In the free market, you would have… Um, you would have free market money, and it would be governed by supply and demand, and and by economic interest, um, mm-hmm. without manipulation by a central actor who has a lot of power to to corrupt it for its benefit and at the expense of the people, uh, both through inflation and through the Cantillon effect, which means that you know. The earlier recipients benefit before the inflation is set in, and also through the business cycle. So the business cycle is set in motion also by fractional reserve banking, um, combined with the government's power to control um, uh, the fiat money system, and the business cycle both impoverishes people and also creates a perpetual underclass of of um, of very poor people, which then the government can you know draft uh, d- economically conscript into the you know even if we don't have conscription anymore. Legally into the military, for example, uh, so many people um, are poorly educated because of the corrupt public schools um, and and because of government regulations and because of unemployment caused by the perpetual business cycle caused by the Federal Reserve. uh, There's always artificially high unemployment, so the the underclass that doesn't want to turn to crime…  … Uh, and go to the prisons that we pay for. Um, they they join the military just to just to put food on the table, and then you can't quit once you join. So even though we say we've abolished conscription, we still have a form of economic conscription, and of course, it largely falls upon uh, minority populations, which tend to constitute the bulk of the uh, of the of the underclass. So you have this horrible rippling effect of of negative effects of 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 government control. … of money, and with law, I, I don't – it's hard to say which one is worse. In a way, law is worse because uh, the Federal Reserve is a subset of law. right? It's created by law, mm-hmm. and you couldn't do that again with customary law. You could never have a national bank that mm-hmm. just emerged. You have to have special legislation, which is a decree by a committee of people in the government to create another agency of their own government. Um, so law is the super the superset of the problem, uh, having artificial law made by made by democratic lawmakers.
0: Well, is it? So the very nature of fiat itself, you know, or, or do this because I said so kind of thing. Correct. This seems to me to be, first of all, coercion is inherent to fiat because otherwise they wouldn't have to command you to do something, right? Someone would have done it voluntarily. And, if coercion, I guess I'd like your feedback on that, is coercion inherent to fiat? And if it is, doesn't that make all declaration by fiat corrosive to civilization? I mean, it seems like you're just creating these externalities of your, your right pushing yeah, people I mean, to do something they wouldn't otherwise do. There have to be second order consequences to that that are deleterious correct. to civilization.
1: Yeah. So let's untangle a couple of things. So fiat just means to to speak or to say something. So you and I can... Say something, but Mm -hmm. unless we have some kind of institutional or coercive power behind it, it's just our opinion, (laughs) Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So the only fiat that we care about is fiat that that has an effect, and it has to have an effect because it's 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 the word of the the sovereign, right? Someone that has a massive amount of power that can get their get their commands um, uh, obeyed, Mm -hmm. and they. Usually, can do that by a massive, by a combination of propaganda and dependency. Right, so many people now work for the government or have mm-hmm. relatives that work for the government, or are dependent upon the government one way or the other. You know, with democracy, they've bought everyone's loyalty because you, mm-hmm. you need your social security payment, or you need the roads, or you need the public schools, or you, you know your brother-in-law works for the cops, or you know your your aunt works for the social security administration, and you know, uh, or the FAA or the army. Uh, um, uh, right and so um um uh, yeah it's so the problem is the coercion that it, that's behind fiat right um um now law now law itself is always viewed as a set of binding rules that apply to interpersonal relationships in society and not just binding like um manners or traditions but binding in the sense that there is some kind of serious Sanction or consequence for the violation of these rules, and it could be ostracism, or it could be social social penalties. But it's usually more se- severe than that. You, usually, it's a monetary fine, or even you know, imp- the threat of imprisonment, mm-hmm. or execution, or or, or, or you know, some, something devastating to your family. So that's how law is backed up. Now, it, there's nothing per se wrong with that because even in a private law society. Um, where there's no government, or there's a, or just a radically decentralized government with very little or truncated or no legislature, like legislation is not the primary means of making law. You're still going to have law, like the law against murder and the law that defends your property, and that law can and should be uh, backed up by force. So that would be a coercive, you know, uh, you know, if you if you try to rob someone or break into their home. You know, you might get shot, and everyone's going to think that was legitimate or just. Or if you get mm-hmm. caught, you might get imprisoned or ostracized or or fined, um, and that's fine. So it's fine to enforce law with force as long as it's a just law. But you're only going to get a just law if it's made privately or at least in a decentralized fashion, where the goal of the lawmakers is not—they're not really considered lawmakers. They're, this is a distinction I, I try to draw in the paper. Um, they're law finders. So their idea is that there's a law out there. It's basically we're trying to work out the net the, the implications of the natural law principles that we all know. We all know the basics. You know you, you shouldn't you shouldn't attack people without provocation. You shouldn't take their stuff. If you find something that's unowned, you own it. You know uh, you can sell something to someone. By contract, uh, people have the right to have interpersonal relationships as long as they both consent. You know the basic rules, and then law c- should be seen as the development of finer and finer detail laws uh, or rules that flesh out the details of this. And over time, over the over the centuries and the millennia, they do get fleshed out, and so the law gets more and more detailed. And that's good because that means there's l- there's more and more legal certainty. Right? So over time, you know, if the law just says you can't hurt people, that's a good rule, but there's a lot of vagueness and uncertainty, so you don't know the details of, how, uh, of particular circumstances that have not arisen before. But as they arise and they get decided and people – customs develop and people learn them, the law becomes more and more certain, and that, that leads to more and more prosperity and more and more possibility of peace and harmony because, again, the purpose of law… And property rights is to enable people to live in peace with each other if they want to. So you have to know what someone's property rights are uh, to, to voluntarily respect it. You have to know what they are. And so the more detailed the law is, a just law, then the more you know and the more we can can cooperate by voluntary trade. So once you know who, who owns something and what your rights are, then you can make a deal and negotiate and trade. Um, so this is the natural evolution and movement of the law. This happened in the Roman law. This happened in the Common Law, and it happened to some degree in other systems like uh, the law merchant, the Lex Mercatoria, in uh, Venice, you know, of the merchants. Uh, even the canon law of the Roman Catholic Church, and in some other legal systems too, uh, uh, Jewish law, um, uh, even Sharia law to some degree, um, um, but. Again, nowadays these systems—the core private law that was a, a developed organically—is becoming more and more submerged with these huge statutory schemes come, that, that bureaucrats come up with. You know, environmental laws, uh, animal rights laws, uh, you know, zoning regulations, <laughs> taxation itself, um, um, you know, COVID mandates—these kinds of things.
0: Yes, such a twisted situation where and it doesn't seem like we've figured a way out of it. Um, you know, civilizations, uh, you, as you pointed out, you know, like the Roman law and English common law, they've come up with these decentralized law traditions, but they seem to centralize over time. Um, so is it, I am I know you said it's kind of difficult to untangle, which is worse, corrupt money or corrupt law. They're definitely uh, seem to be very, Inextricably related, but is it when we begin to corrupt the money, then that's centralizing wealth or property to some extent that that's being that is that centralized power is then being used to uh, back the the force of fiat for even more fiat law? That like, how do you just how do you see the dynamic playing out between decentralized and centralized law and money historically? I,
1: I, I guess I see, um um uh, um both these things rose in tandem with with the abolition of the hereditary monarchies and the the old order the ancient regime and the rise of democracy in the in the uh, around the uh, around the time of the industrial revolution the 1800s and then especially after world war after world war 1 um and so um i i suppose as a especially as a bitcoiner um i, I see money in a way, um, the ability of the state to have fiat money is basically enables it to be able to deficit spend. So it, mm-hmm. it can pass these crazy laws that are expensive and, and go to war only because it can pay for them by control of the of the printing press, right? Mm-hmm. If they had a tax to pay for everything, I think the government would be on a much smaller budget because the people would revolt at a certain point if you tax them 70 80%, you know. Um, and that's what they would have to do. They wouldn't be able to they would not be able to uh, to deficit finance. So in a way, you know, if bitcoin succeeds in replacing these fiat standards as the kind of world reserve currency, you know, uh, my hope is that it would Basically, in the power of government's deficit finance. So it would automatically put them on a tight budget. So they they can pass whatever laws they want, but if they're crazy schemes like this recent um, – these two recent laws that the Democrats are passing, uh, the um, the infrastructure bill, and then this this other – I don't even understand the other one, but the other COVID response thing, um, trillions of dollars, they just wouldn't be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess in a sense, the control of the printing press is in, in a way a central evil that enables the government to just profligately pass stupid laws um, that otherwise they wouldn't be able to pay
0: for. Mm. Yeah, it makes sense that, you know, with no economic discipline whatsoever, governments are just run amuck, And, you know, gold so- somewhat served that purpose historically, but clearly now it doesn't work in the current central banking regime. Uh, you wrote. I'll read one excerpt here. The virtues of economic liberalism, private property, freedom of contract, individualism, natural law, and justice are really only secondary derivations of the basic individual rights to person and property. And this is something I think is so sorely misunderstood today. People don't understand the importance of property, right? We talk about freedom a lot. We talk about um, human rights a lot, but people do not understand the nature of property and and really maybe this is what you know legal discovery is really trying to discover is is you know life liberty and property I, maybe that was a result of this discovery process um i think this was first ratified in the magna carta maybe 1215 life liberty inviolable property um but we've never the way one of the ways i view bitcoin i'd love to hear your feedback on this is that it's the first implementation of inviolable property we've ever had. You know, it's not perfect, but it is seemingly the hardest or most expensive property right to violate that humans have ever had. Do you think that this fundamentally changes the way we organize ourselves in the long run? I mean, that we actually have this principle of inviolable property in a, an implemented form. Does that actually change statism, so- I guess?
1: So, well, I think that because Bitcoin is inviolable in the sense of, um, um, you know, it's hard for any organized effort to control what you can do with it, right? Or to mm-hmm. take it from you. Um, I think that is part of the basis of what makes Bitcoin um, feasible as a non inflating money uh, currency. And again, I think if people flee to that in enough numbers, it will basically. Uh, in the power of the of the states to to um, to deficit finance by printing more fiat money, It's just they won't be able to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. So I do think it will serve there. Um, this idea of Bitcoin as property, I think, uh, here's the way I look at it. Start start with what humans are, like 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 Rothbard did in his uh, treatise, Man, Economy, State. Just consider humans uh, – Robinson Crusoe alone on his island, like just a man by himself in the world as an actor. There's no other people around just to isolate what it is that we do, and what we do is we we live in time, which means we we have a past, and we live in the present, and we, we're aware of a future coming at us. And we have some forecast of what might happen, what's coming, and we sometimes uh, – we, we envision what's coming… And sometimes the prospect of what we think is coming makes us uneasy as Mises called it, but we're not happy with what's coming, or we think that when it gets here, we're going to be unhappy. Like if, I'm, if, I, if I feel hungry in my stomach and I know in, a, in an hour I'm going to be really hungry, in a day I'm going to be near death, uh, I'm not happy with that prospect. So you look around, and you use your understanding as a rational actor, your understanding of the factual situation around you and your, and your and your crude understanding of the causal laws of the world, like what gets things done, and you think, what can I do to stop this? How can I intervene in the state of the affairs to basically change the course of history and to create a new reality in the future instead of the one that's coming? That's what human action is. In a sense, we're all like little mini gods trying to create new universes. Uh mm-hmm. so, so to do that, you have to have access to scarce resources, tools that help you do these things. Like, you know, if I'm hungry, I need to have a a, a stick to spear a fish, and I need fish, and I need my legs to walk me over there. So I need access and in the practical ability to control these resources. Now, in the law, we would just call that possession. So it's, it's and economically, we would just call that control. So that's what humans do. So in such a world, all you have to do is worry about technical problems, like worry about technically how do I get this done? Like, what's the best way to catch fish? Do I make a net? You know, do I throw a grenade in the water and <laughs> blow them up? You know, do I Wait for dead ones to wash up on shore, but anyway, so there's different ways to get fish, and so uh, uh, there's no threat to my use of these resources from other people because there are no other people. Now, when we enter society and there's other people, there are there are uh, advantages of this, and there are drawbacks. The advantage is that you can… Live among other people, and we're a social species, so you can enjoy living with other people. Um, and you can also trade with them, and you can also have division of labor. You can specialize, and so it makes us more efficient. Um, but the problem is now that other people, because they have independent free wills and they have desires, and some of them are not scrupulous, they're a threat to you as well. Because now they might take these resources that you could have used in peace before. Uh, they might take your your fishing you know your fishing spear from you. Um, and so what people do is the, the vast majority of people being social and having empathy because of our nature and our evolution, um, we have certain values. We value ourselves. We also value peace, and we value trade, and we value living in a society where people get along and resolve their differences amicably and peacefully instead of fighting all the time. So there's enough of us that do want to do that so that over time, we start going to dispute resolution to decide matters of conflict when there's a dispute who gets to use this fishing pole who gets to use this plot of land uh, who gets to use this body right if a guy wants to have sex with a girl's body whose decision is it is it the girl's decision or is it your decision right so over time communities of, of people that are roughly civilized and that value each other as well as themselves they tend to settle upon the natural private law rules that we all know today right so that's how law emerges. Um, so the purpose of law, and we call that ownership or property rights. So a property right is more like a a societal recognition of who should have possession of a resource. So possession is a factual matter who who is able to who is able to control a resource,
0: mm.
1: and then property rights or ownership or the law is about who should be able to do it. Right. So one is descriptive and one is prescriptive. Mm. So I think technically speaking bitcoin is not ownable it's not a property right because the nature of bitcoin is that it's a distributed ledger right it's a, it's it's basically a spreadsheet that's that's got many copies distributed on many people's computers and it's updated every 10 minutes simultaneously on everyone's computer right so to have a property right in your Bitcoin would mean you have a property right in the information in that in that database in the blockchain. But that would mean you have property information doesn't exist on its own. It's always mm-hmm. just the impatterning of an of an underlying physical substrate, which is what which is what these blockchain databases are stored on everyone's computer. If you're running a node, you have a copy of the blockchain on your computer, it's just the arrangement of the electrons. On the transistors on your memory board, right? So, the question is, who owns your memory board? And you own it. So, technically speaking, as a purely analytical matter, as a juristic lawyer, uh, I would say you don't own Bitcoin. Now, many Bitcoiners think that that's some kind of um, uh, unrealistic or or as an insult or criticism of Bitcoin, but it's not. It's just recognizing the nature of ownership. However. Remember, the purpose of ownership and property rights is basically to give you the ability to possess and control a resource that you would have had living alone on an island, right? Mm-hmm. It's to basically try to recreate that situation by use of law, which is commands and force and rules. Mm-hmm. Now, with Bitcoin, luckily, you don't need it <laughs> because right. Bitcoin is like something that's impossible to steal. So let me give you another example. Suppose we were all superhuman, invulnerable immortal robots and we just had superpowers and we we just couldn't hurt each other, you know, like like a bunch of hulks, you know, like they punch mm-hmm. each other but they can't hurt each other. And mm-hmm. that in that kind of world, basically aggression is impossible. You wouldn't need property rights, right? Or if everyone's a little mini god, you could blink your eyes and conjure up all the house and food and goods you want and no one could take it from you. You wouldn't need property rights, right? The mm-hmm. whole reason you have property rights is in response to scarcity And that means the possibility of conflict. Hmm. Possibility of conflict is only a problem because people can't, they can physically interfere with your peaceful possession and use of a resource. But if you come up with something that is impossible for someone to steal, like Bitcoin, um, then property rights are just superfluous. I mean, it is better than property rights in the sense that no one can take it from you without your consent, they just can't do it. Now, of Hmm. course, they could do the $5 wrench hack and they could threaten to hit your body to make you give them the your your key um, but 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 so in that sense bitcoin is impervious to uh, being interfered with without your consent because of the cryptographic nature of the system
0: interesting so you don't necessarily own bitcoin you just possess bitcoin
1: yeah, because if you own something, again, it means you should have the right to control it. So yeah. let me give an example. Um, let's say you own a car, which means that the law recognizes that you have the right to use the car. Mm-hmm. Right? That's in addition to and different from your ability to use the car. Like if you have the car, you have the ability to use it. You're, you possess the car. But if you own it, you also have the right to use that car.
0: Mm.
1: Now, what that means is if someone takes your car from you without your permission, if they steal your car you're still the owner but you no longer have the ability to control it right but the law says you should own it which means now you're entitled to use force or the or the or your agents are entitled to use force to get the car back and to take it back from, by force if necessary right um so if you owned a bitcoin so so let's say i own one bitcoin <clears throat> i would say i have a bitcoin but let's say that you want to say i also own the bitcoin and someone guesses my private key. Now I know that's extremely unlikely, but let's just say they guess it. Mm-hmm. Now, if they guess my private key, they have the ability to enter the Bitcoin network and they to, to take to take that Bitcoin and to move it somewhere else, right? Um, now, if I own the Bitcoin, they've stolen it from me because. You know, even if I leave the door of my house unlocked, if someone comes into my house and they steal, take my TV, they're still stealing it. Just because I don't have a lock on my door doesn't mean people are in, entitled to use my resource, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just a, a prudential matter, right? So likewise, if someone guesses my my key, and I'm a, un, I'm the unlucky you know victim of that, and they take my Bitcoin, if I own it, I would have the right to use force to get it back. But because of the nature of Bitcoin, it's just a distributed ledger on 10,000 computers what would that mean it would mean that a, some court somewhere would be entitled to issue an injunction telling i mean the only way to get my bitcoin back would be to roll the blockchain back right mm-hmm. to force every node operator in the world by by some legal command of a court you guys must go into your computer and, and rewrite the data on there and rewrite the blockchain so that this guy gets his Bitcoin back. And actually, that's what Craig Wright tried, is my understanding, in one of his many lawsuits where um, after the Bitcoin Cash-Bitcoin SV split, when he cockily claimed he would win that, that, that fight and Bitcoin Cash dominated over SV, um, he claimed that there was some kind of… C- Some kind of collusion among the the miners or something like that on the BCH side, which made you know Bitcoin SV lose. I I might be getting the details wrong, but it was some complaint like that. And I believe he filed an antitrust lawsuit, a private civil antitrust lawsuit, in a Florida state court. But what's the goal of that? The goal was to get a court to say, okay, you win. These guys colluded, and to order all the Bitcoin Cash node operators and miners to to do what to roll back the chain like Ethereum did, right? Which is probably practically infeasible. Mm-hmm. Um but that's 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 the implication of calling Bitcoin a property right. The implication is that you basically are claiming a property right in the hardware of all the people running running nodes and having a copy of the blockchain because you would have to command them to roll back the to change the data. And I don't think you have the right to do that. And the reason is because it's not against the rules of the Bitcoin network for you to guess someone's private key. That's just a risk you take by joining it. Right? right? There's no terms of service. You don't you don't have to sign on a dotted line saying I promise not to try to guess someone's key. Right. There's no there, there's no rule like that. So that you're not violating any contract rule and no one that has a Bitcoin owns the all the computers that are storing the database that represents the information that sa- lets them say they have this Bitcoin. So that's why I say you don't technically own it. But again, luckily, you don't need to own it because the, the design is so secure that uh, the your, your security in having access to this Bitcoin is far more secure than any legal system could give you because they're always imperfect right? because it's always possible to violate a law. Hey,
0: everybody. or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider NIDIG your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. So this maybe segues into something I've been thinking about. I'd love to hear your perspective on is if Bitcoin succeeds, then we are basically moving the world onto a bearer asset standard to some extent. Now it may not be perfect. People will probably still use banks and intermediaries to, to deal with Bitcoin and whatnot. but um, it seems to me like the legis well let's say that the court process is going to be radically uh, changed by this. So I'm thinking like a very simple case of divorce, right where man and woman parting ways, or husband and wife parting ways they're disputing over who gets what assets. If all of those assets are in Bitcoin, let's say, or the majority of the money is in Bitcoin and, you know, the man controls the keys or the woman controls the keys and the, the judge, um, you know, passes a judgment against one of them saying, hey, give up half the Bitcoin to the other person. It's, as you said earlier, it's largely unenforceable. I mean, depending on how it was custodied and whatnot. Does this change well, the nature of, of court disputes if we move to a well, Bitcoin well,
1: I think it would. It uh, the law would have to adapt to handle something that's unique like this. But mm-hmm. uh, so let me go back for a second. When I say you don't own Bitcoin, I mean because the court has no just authority to tell private third parties what to do with their computers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. However, a given wrongdoer can be subject to the law. So so let's say I break into your house and I break into your safe and I I find your Your Bitcoin keys in your safe. And I use them to take your Bitcoins and transfer them to my wallet. Okay. Now, again, because you don't own the Bitcoins, the court cannot tell all the thousands of node operators to roll that back Mm -hmm. because they didn't do anything wrong and they own their own property. They're entitled to have whatever database they want on their property, uh, uh, you know, stored on their property. Um, However, if this guy is caught, now he committed a physical act of trespass. He broke into your home, right? Mm-hmm. Or he might have violated a contract. Like let's say he's your lawyer or your accountant and you gave him the keys and he he so if he did something wrong that's an independent tort or crime under the law, then there's nothing wrong with using coercion to force this guy. Mm-hmm. So so I think there's nothing wrong with putting this guy in prison if he doesn't reveal the key to let you have your bitcoins back. Because he did something actually wrong, uh, which is a crime, and you can force him to do it. And likewise, if you have a married couple or a a business arrangement, um, you can have contracts with each other which specify uh, uh, your rights uh, uh, with respect to each other, with respect to this asset. right? Um, And so uh, just to take a simple example, husband and wife, in effect, co-own although i would say you don't they don't own it but they have a bitcoin together and they have a contract which says you know if we get divorced then uh wh- whichever one has the keys has to share the has to use his keys to transfer half of it to me mm-hmm. and if they don't do that then let's say bitcoin's worth a million dollars at the time well then the wife could sue the husband in court mm-hmm. and the court could award half a million dollars in fiat mm-hmm. and the husband has to pay it so it, that but wouldn't the ha- be that complicated. The, the can,
0: part is the part, I guess I'm asking about that. It's just going to be much more expensive or difficult to enforce judgments like that. Not, well, you ahead.
1: can afford, you can, you can enforce, um, you know, if someone owes you half a million dollars because of a, a breach of contract, courts have ways of enforcing that. Now I mean, either you have an asset or you don't have an asset. <laughs> if you, um, uh, if, if the husband has, real estate or other assets stocks and bonds or cash then the court that can be seized by force sure, justly sure. I believe yeah. uh, if he if he's penniless and all he has is that one bitcoin and he refuses to hand the key over then um you know the wife's lawyers and the judge would have to be creative mm-hmm. and maybe maybe she's screwed in in which case if she's screwed then people are going to learn oh this is a danger of having this kind of situation in a marriage. Like, if one if it goes bad and one side's a bad actor, you're screwed. Right. So they would start. They would start having different arrangements, like in their prenup or in their, you know, they would say, "Look, you got to put half half the bitcoins in my account and half in yours, or something mm-hmm.
0: like that." Everybody uh, or maybe their own have wallet. a wallet.
1: Yeah, or everyone has their own wallet. So people would adapt to if if it if it becomes practically un- impossible for the law to prevent. Um, um,, some some kind of a sneaky action like that, mm-hmm. that people are going to adapt their behavior to work around that and to prevent that sneaky behavior from, from happening. you know, just like just like Mike Pence refused to have a woman in his office with the door closed, you know <laughs> because there's a chance of being accused of sexual assault or the temptation or something like that. So leave the door open. So people tend to adapt their behaviors to what they know the law can and cannot do. You know, yeah. this is why people ask for deposits. Sometimes, I mean, theoretically, why should anyone ask for a deposit for for like a job? Like, I hired someone to uh, to 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 redo my front yard, and she got a deposit of half ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Why did Why did she need a deposit? Because after the contracts, after she performs a contract, I owe her the money.
0: Yeah.
1: And if I don't pay, she can sue me, right? Well, what if I? You know, what if she doesn't want to have to sue me, or what if? What if I'm penniless at the time? So they know that they know the realities of the legal system's imperfections. So people come up with means to minimize that risk. Sometimes mm-hmm. they use an escrow agent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now you mentioned earlier something I find interesting, um, and uh, my thoughts on this come about partly because of um, the debates among Austrians about fractional reserve banking. You know, you have the kind of Misesians, Rothbardians, the 100% reserve types who oppose. Not only centralized fiat, fractional reserve banking like the Fed does, but even private fractional reserve banking, which the other side, the Hayekian side calls the free, the free bankers call – they call themselves the free bankers. And they believe fractional reserve banking is both um, good and necessary and inevitable. Um, and I, my personal view is that you know it's the same old story. You know, money arose for a purpose to solve the problem of… Double coincidence of wants and also to enable economic calculation, and it, of course, emerged in, in rare, scarce physical resources that are somewhat fungible like seashells and then other things like eventually gold. But because gold has some undesirable qualities like it's bulky and and not easy easily divisible and all that, um, people store them in banks. So there's a custodial function there, right? So you store that as, a, as like a custodial function. So banks have a custodial function, but then the danger. So then they start issuing paper tickets as representatives, and so paper tickets become substitute, money substitutes. But then that makes it easy for the government to start regulating with the power of legislation, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um and and start debasing the money that way and regulating and controlling it. So then paper tickets finally lose the tie to the gold with Nixon's severing. Eventually. And we have the fiat money system. right? In the the meantime, because there's always a need for credit and credit intermediation, banks perform that role too. So banks perform two roles, custodying or warehousing, Mm -hmm. and then credit intermediation. Mm -hmm. And with the rise of fractional reserve banking, those two functions got commingled. So if you put your money in a bank, like your your fiat dollars, you call yourself a depositor, Mm -hmm. and the bank calls you a depositor. But you get interest. Not much now, but you get interest. Why do you get interest? Because they're loaning it out. But if they're loaning it out, how do you have it in the bank? How are you a depositor? So the two functions got merged together, and that allowed people to get confused about it, and that led to the rise of fractional reserve banking and the business cycle and the ability of the government to inflate, and then when… That started inevitably causing runs on banks, and people got pissed off. And so the government had an excuse to step in and insure it with FDIC and FSLIC insurance. Mm-hmm. So the only reason banks don't have runs now because this rickety, inherently unstable, inflationary and, and business cycle causing fractional reserve system is because the government backs it up. So people say that we don't we cut the tie to gold, but we didn't cut the tie to a backing for money, which is the government the government's Being the lender of last resort and being able to print more money to make good on their insurance claims, right? So I think this is the history of what happened. And I personally believe it's extremely unlikely for this to happen with Bitcoin for a couple of reasons. Number one, you don't need to store it. You don't need to store it in a bank because it's not like gold. It's Mm -hmm. anyone really can store it on their own thumb drive if they want to. It's a little complicated now, but it's only going to get easier, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And even if you do store it like in a custody like Coinbase, it's basically free because their costs are so minimal. Mm-hmm. And if you look at Coinbase's terms of service, you know they don't say it like this. But if you if you look at how um, they explain their insurance, they have insurance on the one percent or two percent that's live, and they don't have insurance on the on the rest with the ninety eight percent which is cold. Mm-hmm. And the reason is they couldn't afford insurance on trillions, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of assets. Mm-hmm. Um, so they only insure the part that's live against embezzlement. You can buy insurance for that because it's only a risk of – it's not a risk of default of your of your customers who you loan money to. It's just a risk of embezzlement or uh, some kind of theft or crash, mm-hmm. which you can insure against. Um, and the rest is in cold storage. But the point is you can store your – I'm not saying it's a good idea from a Bitcoin perspective to store your money in a custody like Coinbase because you don't own your keys. But the point is the costs are basically negligible. Mm-hmm. Okay? And – because bitcoin of course coinbase makes it clear that there's a there's a one to one relationship of the amount of bitcoins deposited with the with the money that they hold now because you don't own your keys it means that all you have a claim on a pro rata share of this mass of bitcoins that coinbase holds which is exactly what Her- Hueta de Soto, who's an Austrian economist who opposes free banking, explains is the right legal Roman law analytical framework with which to view the role of banking with gold. In other words, he calls it an irregular deposit. So what you would have is you would have – if I deposit 10 gold coins with a bank for safekeeping, then if I don't want to put them into a safety deposit box, which would have pretty high fees… Right. And that's called a regular deposit. It means I still maintain ownership. Someone just is holding it for me. Like I give it to the bank to put on their mountain of gold coins and to commingle with the rest. And they're all fungible, but I have a claim on the on 10 gold coins from their pile of gold. Mm -hmm. But there's a one-to-one correspondence between all their outstanding customers, depositors, and all the gold that they hold. Like there's no fractional reserve banking. They can't lend them out. If they did so, it would be theft. So, it's what's called an irregular deposit. Anyone who's interested in this should read Huerta de Soto's great book. Uh, I think it's called Money Banking Cycles or something like that. It's on the Mises.org website. Mm-hmm. I think it's the first, second, third, fourth chapter. He goes into this. The free bankers hate it. … because it, it would undermine – but what that means is banks have two separate roles. One is storing money, and the most efficient way to do it would be as an irregular deposit, mm-hmm. which is what Coinbase does. They commingle all these things. It's, 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 it's the analog of an irregular deposit. Um, and then the second function is credit intermediation, which means I loan you my, my gold coins, and then the bank can loan them out to its other borrowing customers mm-hmm. in the hopes of getting an interest rate paid to them by the people they loan the money to… And then the bank pays you interest, which is lower than that. The bank makes profit off the difference. right? So when I loan you my coins, I get interest because the bank is loaning them out at a higher interest rate. Right. And it just saves me the trouble of finding uh, someone to borrow my coins from me because the bank is more efficient at it. That's called credit intermediation. And I think there is, there's a role for that right now. I think that's what this Bitcoin um, lending is doing. But when people do this, you notice Bitcoiners are under no illusions that they have a guarantee to get their money back because right. the companies that they loan their Bitcoins to could go bankrupt because the people they're loaning it to may go into get into trouble and be unable to repay their loans At which at which point in time the Bitcoin lending bank's assets, which are primarily the loans they hold… Are worth less, or worth nothing, or worth less, yeah. which means the bank is now insolvent. So they have to pay people Satoshis on the dollar, or whatever you want to call it, pennies <laughs> yeah, on the dollar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, they'd be run. And there's no federal insurance of this. And so everyone's aware of this risk. So I think that unless the government intervened and started having f- deposit insurance of Coinbase, to allow Coinbase to start fractional reserve lending and rehype. This is what this rehypothecation thing in Bitcoin is all about. Yeah. Rehypothecation is the mechanism to create fractional reserve banking. Now, I don't think it's possible in Bitcoin for two reasons. If I loan my Bitcoins to some company and they, re- they re-lend them um, to earn interest and to pay me interest, um, that claim I have on my my borrower, in effect, my claim is, is just a promissory note. It's an IOU. Mm-hmm. They owe me – if I loan one Bitcoin, they owe me one Bitcoin. But it's not – I don't hold a Bitcoin. I hold a claim to a Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Now, if I wanted to buy something with Bitcoins, like someone says, I'm selling you my car for one Bitcoin, I don't think they would accept my IOU for a Bitcoin as a payment because it's not going to be worth one Bitcoin because there's some risk associated with it right. because the borrower may may stand me up. This is why I don't think IOU claims for lent bitcoins can be what's called a money substitute. So mm-hmm. there's no way fractional reserve banking works unless people think that these claims, these IOU claims, are worth exactly the amount of the lent funds that you, de- quote, air quotes, deposited with the with the uh, with the bank. Mm-hmm. Um, unless there's there's deposit insurance, right, which mm-hmm. is an artificial intervention in the market. So, so my opposition to free banking and fractional reserve banking, and my my view that you should have a clear dis- distinction in the banking system between storage and between credit intermediation, I think that leads me to believe that because of the unique nature of Bitcoin, it just won't happen. There won't be a commingling of these two functions. Um, Again, because the fees are so low and you don't really need a bank to store your bitcoins. Um, and furthermore, I believe in the Bitcoin world, I think the practice of credit and borrowing will almost all will almost disappear. This is a crazy yeah. view of buy, but I think people will just earn money, save their money. Like you get out of college or or out of high school or whatever, and you get your first job. It's a prosperous economy because the government's not intervening, there's no business cycle anymore. Your money saved in Bitcoin grows in value every year. Maybe not 200%, but maybe 5%, 10%. You know, it's pretty good. Just not losing value. And and you save up until you can buy a house, and you rent an apartment in the meantime. It's not a big deal. So you get out of – you start your first job, and for 10 years, you're renting, and then you buy a house for cash. Mm-hmm. I I think you save – if you need a car, you rent a car, use Uber, or, or, or you buy a you, you know you, a cheap used car, and then you finally buy a new car or whatever you want for cash. So my personal view is the whole function of credit is going to almost disappear. And the storage fees are going to be basically zero, or you can self self-custody. So I think banking is going to radically change um, um, with the advent of Bitcoin.
0: Yeah. No, I actually agree with you on the, the debt piece specifically. I've thought that, you know, we're 350% global debt to GDP. I could see that contracting down below 10%. You know, it should it should almost go away. Um, just based on the incentives, right? There's just, there wouldn't be a lot of incentive to um, borrow in the money that's appreciating like that, you know, versus fiat currency where you have every incentive to borrow because the money or, is... Or put
1: it this way, there, there's less of an incentive for me. Why would I loan my Bitcoins out? It's it's already, it's already earning 10% a year, let's say yeah. in real terms. Yeah, So both sides. What, what am I going to get by loaning it out? Uh, I, I've got to get 20% and, Who's gonna pay 20% interest? I mean, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, definitely it's gonna be right. I want to zero in on something though. So, you know, incentives basically is what we're talking about, right? Incentives changing the patterns of human action in a very significant way, um, potentially for a really long time, you know, assuming that Bitcoin monetizes and Um, remains money for for several hundred years. You already mentioned earlier that this would put a, a, some economic, reintroduce some economic discipline to government. So that would, in theory, uh, restrict a lot of government spending, really that things that are being passed today just wouldn't happen, right? They would not have recourse to those funds. I wonder too, your views about, does this influence the nature of the business models we see in the world? Like there's there's some theory in Bitcoin circles that a lot of the rent seeking, uh, a lot of the deceptive behavior, a lot of these, uh, you know, unicorn companies that a lot of this is rooted in just the money is losing value. <laughs> so quickly that people have to get increasingly take on increasingly exotic and substantial risk to outperform that inflation and that yep. culminates in all these weird uh behaviors we see between market participants in the world so do you how significantly do you think swapping out the incentives of money moving from a fiat currency standard to a hard money standard actually changes uh human like human character, human behavior, human interaction.
1: I mean, I honestly personally believe that it's going to be radically transformative, um, maybe in some unimaginable ways, but pretty much all good. I think that we're so used to, um, not only fiat legislation, but fiat money. Um, and that has increased our time preference. It's also impoverished us because of the business cycle. Mm Um, and it's led us to this, uh, and also easy credit and fake, falsely, you know, uh, artificially low credit, um, and the business cycle itself leads people to make all these investments, and also, again, leads people to f- your average, your average saver to flee to stocks and bonds, which they don't really know much about, mm-hmm. but just to chase some kind of return to keep from losing the purchasing power of their money if you save it in, in dollars in the bank. Right. Um, so yeah, I think I think you would have, um, and also uh, so many things like people uh, uh, putting their some of their wealth into real assets just to try to preserve value, like real estate, yeah, using things that are not really equipped to be uh, a store of value, like real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, they should be used productively instead. So I could see the price of stocks falling, the price of land falling, uh, when Bitcoin gets this uh, uh, this this becomes the basic means by which people use the store of value. That said, I personally sort of wonder if in the long run, now I think as Bitcoin is monetizing over the next say 10 years or whatever it's going to be, and it's gradually going up in value until it until it sort of plateaus, if it ever does, I think it will plateau at some point uh, if it's successful, um, at say like 10, 12 million, whatever it's going to be, when it starts plateauing and it becomes the the de facto world reserve currency i think then it'll appreciate more or less with productivity and population increase so you know say 5 10% a year something like that it won't be going 170% at that point in time so i think right now it's it makes sense for people to keep an increasingly large percentage of their assets in bitcoin because it's going up in value even if you have 5% in Bitcoin right now, if it keeps going up in value, eventually that's going to be seventy percent, seventy-five percent of your of your wealth, right, or more. Um, so, are you going to sell just because you don't want you want to diversify? I think a lot of people are going to hold on until it plateaus. Um, but once it's plateaued, I sort of wonder if people will keep. Let's say your average guy, working for you know a company, mid level guy. Would he keep all of his savings in Bitcoin because there's still some risk? You know, maybe the network crashes, maybe a new, maybe a better crypto comes along, and we finally switch to it. You know, maybe you only keep ten percent or twenty percent of your wealth in cash, even though it's going up in value at ten percent a year, just for diversification. So maybe you do put the rest in an index fund or in, you know, your brother-in-law's restaurant or, uh, um, uh, you know. Uh, maybe loan funds to someone starting a business. I don't know what people would do. Um, but I I do wonder if people would really keep all of their or, you know, or most of their resources in Bitcoin once it's plateaued. Uh, but we have to wait and see. That would be a good, good problem to have to uh, to, to wonder about how people are going to adjust to it.
0: What do you think about the moral standard, though? Because I know some of the Austrians have written oh, yeah. the monetary standard and the moral standard are inexorably linked. We know that You know, civilization as a reflection of time preference. Um, We've already outlawed or outlined how some of these, you know, aspects of fiat law and fiat money increase our time preference. What do you think? Do you think we have a a renaissance of some kind?
1: Yeah, I do. So, yeah, I forgot to uh, go into that. um, I think some. I think Gita Holzman's written a little bit of this on the ethics of money production, but really one good essay people who are interested in this should read is by Paul Cantor, who's a um, uh, an Austrian influenced um, uh, like a, a cultural critic, um, and he, he wrote a paper in the Review of Austrian Economics called uh, "Hyperinflation and Hyperreality," um, something in light of Thomas Mann, but mm-hmm. he goes into how. There's so many corrosive cultural and psychic um, and social effects of this of this inflationary period that we live in. Right, it changes the the character of the people. Like like I said earlier, I think I, I wonder if credit the, the idea of borrowing will just fade away. People have short, short, high time preference now. Like you know. Live in the moment because the future is so uncertain mm-hmm. and could be so bad, right? So people spend, and they they're they're more materialistic. They're more mm-hmm. focused on using their money now. They live paycheck to paycheck because might as well spend it because this money is worth less all the time. Um, I do think it can have a radically transformative effect on character. Um, I mean, I'm reminded a little bit again of the Fraction Reserve debate. One of the arguments the free bankers make. As to why we need fractional reserve banking, is they believe that with a a fixed supply money, or with deflation, price deflation, which I think is a good thing. I think price deflation is a good thing. That means your your money's real purchasing power is going up over time. They think one problem with that is that um, it would cause economic dislocations and therefore uh, make us more poor poorer because um, there's a phenomenon which they call  … … sticky sticky downward wages. So they imagine that if there's an increase in the demand to borrow money, for example, in a fixed-money supply world, um, you can't just print more money or you can't lower the reserve ratio in fractional reserve banking to make more credit available for them to borrow. The only way to do it effectively is to increase interest rates and to basically cut the wages of workers… And they believe workers are psychologically stuck on whatever their pay is. So let's say you're being paid 0.3 Bitcoins a year for your job. Let's, see, mm-hmm. let's, let's be optimistic, 0.1 Bitcoins a year for your job. Mm-hmm. Um, um, well, that's a million dollars. No, 0.01 Bitcoins a year, whatever. right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're being paid a certain amount of Bitcoins per year as your wage, your salary. Um, and if the company has to cut it by 5%, even if that 5% – that 95% of Bitcoin next year is worth more than the one, one now, they think you'd be reluctant to do that. You're going to resist mm-hmm. it, and therefore it's going to cause economic dis. now, I think that that's – I think that's crazy. I think people are not stupid. If you tell someone, look, yeah, every year your price, your wage goes down a little bit. has to because there's more people every year, Mm. Uh, but you can buy more and more with it. You're richer every year. People can do the math. They're not stupid, but they're imagining people like they are now. Their whole character has been corrupted by this expectation of inflation. Mm. People expect the wage raise every year, cost-of-living raise every year. That's Mm -hmm. crazy, right? Mm -hmm. We're so used to that. I think people's character would change pretty quickly and for the better, um, and it would have all kinds of cascading effects. Um, So yeah, yeah, I think, in a way, I kind of believe Bitcoin fixes this too. Bitcoin, in a way, could fix the law right? because, like I said, if Bitcoin cuts off the ability of the government to deficit finance and it makes us richer because of that and also because it gets rid of the business cycle… and it makes the government less able to enforce these stupid legislative schemes. Again, it's going to cripple their ability to enact laws that that are artificial legislative schemes that require lots of artificial fiat money to fund.
0: Yeah. Well said. It, it's, um, I do view that to be the greatest promise of Bitcoin is that it's just uh, inhibitory to coercion, right? In general, we just, are able to build relationships and, and he, modes of human organization that are less coercive in nature. Um,
1: well, let's let take the drug. Why, why do we have the drug war? Because the government um, impoverishes people. So it creates slums and welfare, you know, uh, ghettos mm-hmm. and and an impoverished class and it pays, it, it helps them with welfare basically, right? Public schools and other forms of welfare, which it pays for with the fiat money system, right? So the average person, the average voter, like okay, well, I'm not paying for it. They don't see, they don't realize they're paying for it by by price inflation, right? Or, or then they put them in prison, and how are the prisons paid for? You know, not really with our tax dollars, because it, the government's running a deficit, right? So it's, uh-huh. again, if the, if the government had to actually pay um, direct welfare payments to these people and all the costs of prison, and had to tax everyone for that, your average sort of amoral Conservative anti-drug suburban idiot who who's in favor of the drug war now because oh drugs are bad and okay why might as well make it illegal mm-hmm. if if it has a like if you're paying ten thousand dollars a year out of your taxes for it you know even a drug warrior might think uh, is it really worth paying ten thousand bucks a year or twenty thousand mm-hmm. bucks a year or whatever it is to stop people from smoking weed? <laughs> eh. Now nah, let that one go. Let that one go. Yeah. So I, yeah, I can see how Bitcoin would even end the drug war. Do you know what
0: I mean? Yeah. No, it's it's a great point. It's um, yeah, it's interesting how it just brings so much to light. You know, the other thing I think about a lot is we've been forced into using the best of the worst among fiat currencies. That's why when you see one of these economies go into hyperinflation or economic crisis, they tend to dollarize. They just grab, they latch on to the strongest fiat currency available. But Bitcoin seems like it'll do something different because now we have this kind of irrepressible barometer of inflation where as before countries could just inflate in lockstep. And as long as they did it in a somewhat concerted fashion, that people were just blinded by the illusion. But Bitcoin, there's really, there's something deep about it where it does seem to be you know, rooted in truth or, or consensus, nothing is hidden. I guess you might say, which with all these fiat systems, it's all about deception, right? Force and deception. So,
1: great- and not only, you know, there's another problem. I always, I wonder people don't talk about as much. There must be massive counterfeiting going on in the world. I mean, illegal oh, counterfeiting, I'm sure. <laughs> because every country has a printing press, so I, I imagine there's dozens of countries in the world that have the ability to print U S dollar bills, yeah. hundred dollar bills, and they must be doing it. Yeah. Uh, I, so in addition to, I mean, uh, but Bitcoin can't be counterfeited. <laughs> that's another yes. benefit of it.
0: Yeah. That, and that's the whole thing right there. I right? like central banking is a globalized counterfeiting operation. And so Bitcoin fixes that and fixes all the other, um, counterfeiters around it. Um, I, I do
1: wonder if, I do wonder if, um, some of these countries that tended to dollarize before, I could see the temptation to, to do it with Bitcoin, but it, it's perceived as so volatile right now, and it is. And I wonder how how much more track record we have to get under our belts and how much further down the road it has to get in terms of actual absolute price and maybe in the volatility, dampening down enough not to scare people so much. Mm-hmm. Um uh, for people, for for some sovereigns to to flee to it as their only currency. Uh, although I could see some municipalities and small countries starting to do what what like MicroStrategy's done, right, using it as a uh, and you know, so, let's say a pension fund or a uh, um, or a small town, even in the U.S., starting to put some of their money in Bitcoin and. Adjust to to bail themselves out of their upcoming deficits, right, and right. to quit losing money on low yield bonds and other things that they hold. Um, um, my hope is that will build in a constituency that will make it harder and harder politically for the state to try to ban it. Like you know, once thousands of counties or or, or cities or whatever uh, school districts and pension funds in the U.S have significant bitcoin on their assets then it may be like the uber thing it may be too it may be too late for the government to try to ban it at a certain point.
0: Yeah, I would say that and just the success of experiments like the bitcoin city in El Salvador where they've they basically zeroed out all the taxes I think except a 10% flat sales tax. Um, you would expect there to be an economic boom there and and other cities and and polities will see this and replicate it and um, yeah, I think this this mimetic wave related to Bitcoin is going to be very powerful. Um, it already has been at the individual level, so we're just going to see how it plays out at institutional and and nation state levels. Um, I'm going to close out here with just reading one more excerpt. Um, I think you're you're citing someone here, but you wrote, "Although law developed in a decentralized legal order is an unplanned, spontaneous order, it results in certainty." while a centralized legal system tends to destroy certainty. And then you go on to quote a writer that says, statute law is in fact much more capricious than common law, precisely because in the modern world especially, statutes change frequently according to the whims of legislatures. A structure of law which is not the result of will and cannot be known in its entirety paradoxically displays more regularities than a written code. I mean, this is the whole name of the game. It's just getting back, you know, society is comprised of the individual, right? It is a bottom-up complex phenomenon. And this entire idea of being able to dictate it from on high, from behind, you know, inside the ivory tower by fiat and, you know, pull the levers to control the complex system that is the world economy or the geopolitical order is just outdated and asinine, I think. So it's, it's great. To see Bitcoin just um, almost forcing, it's a forcing function, right? It's really putting centralization and decentralization head to head to see which, to prove which one works. Um,
1: Yeah, one thing I would say uh, for people interested in that article, which is a pretty long article in the journal of Libertarian studies i think it was 1995 i wrote it mm-hmm. um, I wrote a summary version which is on my website too so it was in the freeman and then the Mises.org republished it so if you go to stepfanconsella.com uh, slash publications I have a shorter version um, about legislation uh, which summarizes all the points in that long article and there's another really good quote you might you might like and you can look it up after it's it's on my uh it's on my website Um if you go to stefangassella.com slash LLW, which is short for my my upcoming book, Law in a Libertarian World, uh, I've got a, a list of links to some blog posts. And one of them is – the title is something like um, Another Problem with Legislation, and it talks about – it quotes this guy, James Carter, who was a common law lawyer – I'm trying to remember the, the details right – in New York in the 1880s. And there was an effort at the time to take New York's private common law, which is largely common law, not not legislation-dominated yet back in the 1800s. Um, there was an effort to codify it, which means you have some government committee that takes all the case law that has organically developed, and you you, you put it into a systematic restatement, which is nothing wrong with that. This is what – legal – this is what commentators do. They, they kind of rewrite the law, and they state it for the average guy to read it so he can figure out what it is, but it's just like a private opinion. Like, Here's my summary of all the law. right? But the codification effort means you take it, you make a code out of it, and then the legislature ratifies it as law. They, they hmm. enact it as legislation, and then that new code is a statute which replaces all the common law. Hmm. And Then the problem with that is the substance of it at first is pretty good because it's basically – this is what the civil code in Louisiana and France and the -hmm. continental codes were. They took the Roman law and the European law that had evolved over centuries, and they – Napoleon did it first. He put it into a code, which was beautiful, but then the legislature enacted it as a law. And the first article says legislation is the supreme source of law. Mm-hmm. So they enshrined legislative positivism as a, like legislation as a source of the primary source of law by doing that. And then that gives the legislature um the, the temptation to tinker with it over time and to start mm-hmm. inserting their policy preferences into the law and corrupting gradually over time this 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 what was a private body of law. Anyway. There was an effort to do this in New York with their common law in the 1800s, which failed. Um, it failed explicitly, but of course now New York is dominated by legislation, which has largely submerged the common law. But it was never replaced wholesale. Anyway, there was a there was a codification effort, and this guy James Carter wrote this impassioned speech and article to oppose it, and uh, it's great. I I can't quote it all from memory, but he says something like, you know, when when law is done under common law. In the private law system, a judge hears from the parties, and he's trying to do justice. He tries to consult what was done before. He tries to hear their arguments. He tries to ask questions to understand the context, the customs, and he tries to do justice. That's the that's the whole goal. Um, but when we replace that legal system with one dominated by legislation, the goal of judges becomes… Not to do justice, but just to interpret words. Mm. So, I mean, I've put I pointed this out the other day on Facebook or in some speech I did, and uh, Nick Sarwark, uh, one of the LP, one of the Libertarian Party types, um, basically said that's stupid because what I said was federal judges are not li- in our, in the American system. Federal judges, I, by, by I mean the judges in, in the district courts and the appeals courts and the Supreme Court, they're not really judges. And and Star says, oh, it's pretty stupid to say someone's not a judge just because you don't like what they do. And that's not my argument is that I don't like what they do. My judge my argument is that their job is not to do justice. Mm. It's not their fault. They're what they're doing looks like. It's just like fiat money looks like real money, but mm-hmm. it's not. It's got the cloak of money. It co-opted the forms of money to fool everyone, right? Uh, you know, you have all these promissory notes um that have all this fancy lettering on them and the mm-hmm. pictures of famous people and the they try to look solid. If you look at a Federal Reserve building they look solid and like yeah. they're they're holding a bunch of gold and all that, you know, they, yeah. they mask the forms of the things that they that the government has co-opted and supplanted, right? Um, and so these federal judges, their job is to interpret and apply. Federal legislation and the federal constitution, both of which are just arbitrary decrees written by a committee of bureaucrats. You look at almost any federal law; it's got nothing to do with natural law, natural justice, or fairness. The Constitution itself, to its credit, does have some core natural principles because it it borrowed a lot from things that were developed in the Magna Carta and the English system before. But it's largely just a system of decrees, and basically, if if the court finds a case in which the outcome is totally unjust and horrendous, too bad because they have to do what the law says. So their job is not to do justice. Mm. It's to interpret words, whether those words correspond to justice or not. And by and large, they don't. So I don't think federal judges are actually judges. Um, um,
0: Fiat judges.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's where I was going. So they're they're, fiat, they're 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 pretending to be judges. Not only that, they work for the they work for the government. Uh, I mean, they're just a branch of the federal government. Everyone says, "Oh, they're they're there to put a check on the government." Like they are the government. What are you talking about? <laughs> they're in cahoots with the government.
0: <laughs> well, Stefan, this has been an awesome conversation. I really appreciate your writing. Um, it helps sharpen my understanding about all of these things that I'm not an expert in, but they're very important as they relate to um, you know, socioeconomics and uh, justice, frankly, right? Because that's that's what this is all about. Moving back to a hard money standard is just restoring justice in the world. So uh, you mentioned your website. Is there anywhere else you could let my audience know where they can find you?
1: Uh, I'm NS, N.S. Kinsella. My first name is Norman. So it's N.S. Kinsella. I'm at N.S. Kinsella on Facebook and uh, and Twitter. And uh, yeah, com is, is the main place for this kind of writing.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for what you do and appreciate you coming on the show today.
1: Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it.